Morning. Good to see you. So I thought I'd offer some thoughts this morning on um, what's really one of the most important insights of insight meditation. Um, <clears throat> Buddha pointed to it over and over again throughout the teachings, and uh, it seems so obvious. <laughs> but it's one of those things that, uh, because of our conditioning, that um, you know we just don't get it. And uh, maybe I can offer some thoughts this morning that would help us see what the insight is and, and uh, subtle ways that we can practice so that so as to get it. This is the teaching of anicca, or impermanence, contemplating the impermanent nature of all of phenomenon. So sitting in, in uh, meditation as we, as we do uh, and watching the body and the mind, we begin to notice things changing. We begin to notice this ever-changing stream of sensations, in the body, noticing the, the uh, inhale and the exhale, noticing various sensations that are going on throughout the body, just noticing that now there's a sound, now there's a feeling, now there's a thought, just watching this incredible changing stream, literally from one second to the next. It doesn't stay the same for one second to the next. And so, you know, meditation teachers will try to uh, direct our observing in the meditation practice. Just begin to to point us in the direction of saying, you know, uh, notice what is happening. Just begin to notice what's happening. Don't make any judgments about it. Don't get caught up in it. Don't push it away. But try to establish a posture in relation to experience that is settled back and relaxed enough and not interfering, not interacting with it in any way, such that you can notice this. You know, but this impulse to get caught in it in one way or another is so great that, that just, the, just the capacity to sit back from a vantage point that allows us to notice with impartiality what's happening is huge, isn't it? I mean, that's, <laughs> you know... Uh, I was talking to people uh, this week about uh, just people new to practice and really encouraging them to not um, be too quick to decide how it's going or to, to give it up even because um, it takes, it, it, you know, my, in my experience really, I try to encourage people to stay with it for three to five years before you decide whether or not to keep doing it. You know? <laughs> Just keep watching. And, and uh, uh, you know, because we're trying to overcome this incredible momentum to, to um, get caught in things. And just developing that kind of impartiality such that you can begin to look really takes three to five years. At least that's my experience. Of course, then I'm a slow learner. <laughs> maybe you're, maybe you're not so slow. But so, um, the the idea is to the idea and the instruction. Uh, you know, when we're saying like, how is it now? How is it at this moment? Just noticing the stream and constantly looking and seeing how it is. It, it's not like to get a sense that there's a right answer. You know, the the instruction is really pointing us in the direction of, of trying to guide us to realize this changing nature. So that if you keep asking yourself, how is it, how is it, how is it, sooner or later, it's almost like so, it's something, we, we break through this veil, we break through this density of holding it in a permanent, solid way and begin to get it that it's it's changing, it's constantly changing. 
So that it's no accident that in um, the, what's really the most important teaching on the meditation practice itself, the Satipatthana Sutta, the foundations of mindfulness, that with each one of these, there's four sections in it where the Buddha points us to, to looking at the body, to feeling, to mind, and to mind objects. With each one of those first three sections, when he's talking about body, feeling, and mind, which is uh, largely our thoughts, um, he ha- there's a little section after each where he says, okay, look at seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, look at pleasure and pain, look at thoughts. And right after each of those, there's a section that says, notice that they arise and pass away. Just keep noticing that. So like throughout this most important instruction, he's, he's pointing, you know, look, 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 and begin to notice that. So that if we're watching over time, you know, not stringing things together as we do, you know, this, there's this incredible propensity for creating a continuity in our experience that really isn't there. <laughs> it's not there. But we'll, we're like a, like a film, you know how a film, cre- you, know, you, you look at these discrete photographs and it creates a sense of something permanent and continuous. It's, it's, it's all an illusion. You know, it's, it's an illusion of the mind. And so the effort is to just keep watching it, to try to see for ourselves that it's very different from one moment to the next. So that in one moment there's pain, in one moment there's pleasure, in one moment there's there's happiness, and the next there's sadness. You know, there's one moment we're up, the next moment we're down. So if we can get this, see, you see how the pull of these two uh, extremes keeps catching us. You know, it's like, you know, we believe we're up, we believe we're down, we believe we're happy, we believe we're sad. We just get caught in the energy of these various states. And uh, what we need to do is settle back down so so deeply and impartially that if, if if we're so that we're not getting caught in the energy of those states, then if you can feel it, you know, from that posture, it's like, oh wow, up darn, one minute I'm happy, one minute I'm sad, you know, it's it just keeps moving, it just keeps changing, but it takes this kind of impartiality in relation to it to begin to to get this insight. Okay. Are you with me? It's a very, it's very subtle. It's just saying to go with it in that direction. So we might try to come up with some absolute statement about the way it is, uh, but we realize that there isn't, there isn't any such statements. Everything in our world, our, the world itself and everything within it just keeps changing. It's never one, all one way or all, in, all another. This is a very rich insight. You know, the implications of it, we'll get into it in a few moments, but very, very rich. It sounds so obvious, but we don't get it. We don't act as though we get it. We don't get it and we don't behave as though we get it. So just to reflect a little bit, this, this isn't a mysterious realization. It, it can occur in everyday situations. You know, in every everyday moment-to-moment events, you don't have to do intensive practice to see this. Um, but the thing is that the insight has to be very deep. It has to be penetrating. And so it has to, you, we have to have developed this sense of detachment or non-attachment from experience in order to see it. And that's where, where we say it's, it has to be very direct. 
It can't be up here. Sure, I mean, if we all think about it, we all say, you know, everything changes, you know. <laughs> it's, not, it's not this way, it's that way, you know. Yeah, everybody in the room goes, yeah, that's right, you know. So, well, if we got it, if that's all it took, then we would get it and we wouldn't behave and, and suffer. We wouldn't suffer as much as we do. But it obviously takes something much more than that. The first time I saw this for myself in a very direct way, and really, I was um, 35 years old. <laughs> you know, it's not it's not that uh, uh, common an experience. But I was doing intensive practice at uh, Insight Meditation, and I had gone. I was kind of one of these practitioners that they called um, hardcore. You know, <laughs> I would just kind of knuckle down and get into these incredible states of determination and. And I don't know where it came from. You know, I don't know where the energy came from. But you build a certain momentum of stick to and determination when you, when you can practice for, for months at a time, you know. So I would get into these states now and then where I just wanted to remove all distractions and have as little movement, a little external movement in my world as possible so that my internal world would stop moving so much, you know, so that then the, the more still you can get, then the, the, the fewer things are happening so you can see them. You know, you're able to see them a little bit better. So I, I would, a couple of times during this period where I was sitting for so long, I, um, I uh, asked, I arranged with the staff there uh, to uh, see if I could, I wanted to see if I could just sit for a few weeks, sit and walk in my room without uh, coming out, without going to the hall, without doing anything else. And so um, I arranged with them to uh, bring me a meal once a day and determined that that would be the only meal that I would eat that day. And and uh, and then, you know, I, I my room was way down in the basement. I could, I, I knew when to come out of the room to go to the bathroom and to shower and, and uh, take care of those, uh, my basic needs. I knew when to come out at times when people wouldn't be around. You know, so literally, I could, I could really put these blinders on and not see um, anybody or be have these external stimulation to disturb the mind. And so, um, yeah, the staff agreed. They were very, very, very nice and and helped me with this. And we arranged this thing where they would just bring my tray at a specified time and knock on the door and. Then I would wait a few minutes and they would leave. And so I wouldn't even have to see them while I collected my tray. It's kind of obsessed. <laughs> Get a little neurotic sometimes in meditation. <laughs> so um, then, you know, for the first few days of this, it was the usual uh, fare. You know, there's just whatever was being served. You could tell somebody put it in a bowl and brought it to me. And, uh, and that was lovely. You know, I was very happy for it. But then after, um, after the first few days, then one day I opened the door and there was this incredible tray there. You know, somebody had gone to great effort and created a tray with, you know, it had doilies on it, it had flowers and a <laughs> candle and, you know, everything matched, you know, which is hard to do at IMS, you know, because everything was the same colors, all the, the bowls and the, cups and everything. Somebody found a teapot and fixed tea. And, everything. and it was like, you know, when you're this still, these, uh, all of the 
acts of kindness, you know, will just go whoosh right in you. Isn't it true? When you're on retreat, everything is just the food tastes so great. You know, everything that anybody does for you is like, you know, this immense gift. But I, I received this from this open-hearted place, and oh, I was so happy. You know, I just, I couldn't even eat it. I was crying. I was just so happy that somebody had taken the time to prepare something like this. And, you know, just appreciating the generosity of that kind of spirit. And, uh, you know, you get a sense of that, how nourishing um, heart stuff can be, you know, because all of a sudden I wasn't even hungry. But anyway, I, I just sat there for a while and just delighted in it and then gradually began to, to eat it through um, these tears of joy. So the, the next day, I was kind of anticipating. <laughs> <laughs> kind of going like this, you know, watching, watching the time for the, the specified time for the tray to arrive. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you can almost tell where the story's going, right? Uh, <laughs> so waiting and you know, the specified time came and went, and there's no knock on the door. You know, 15 minutes or so went by, and there's still no knock at the door. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, oh, they're just putting the finishing touches on it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be here any minute, you know. And, uh, you know, 20 minutes, 25 minutes. And, you know, over this period of time, again, in this open-hearted state, the pain is <laughs> felt a lot more deeply as well, you know. And so, you know, my chest is starting to sink in and I'm just having to face the inevitable, you know. And, oh, I went back and forth in my mind whether to keep my determination because the food was upstairs. I could go upstairs and get it, you know, um, if somebody had forgotten me. But I decided, no, this was, my determination was to receive this one meal, this meal that was offered, and I decided if it wasn't offered, you know, then I wasn't going to eat. And so I just sat there. And it was like as if in that moment of really getting it that I had been forgotten, you know. Then I started crying, crying, crying. The other way, all of the pains, all of the moments of my life where somebody disappointed me or let me down or, you know, where I had been forgotten or rejected or whatever, just came, just rushed in in this moment of realizing that uh, this is what had happened. And I cried and, and cried in, in the same kind of way. But then, you know, it, it, it's as if um, in this moment something shifted and I, I, I suddenly it was outside of it and looking at it from a distinctly different vantage point. And it was like that you know, wow, I could have had a V8 commercial, you know. It was like, wow, you know, it's, it's like this. It's, life is like this. You know, from one moment to the next. We don't know what it's going to bring. And it's filled with incredible happiness, incredibly wonderful moments, and incredibly deep and painful moments, moments where we've been forgotten and dejected and rejected, you know. And and from that deep experience, just kind of snapping out of the pain of it and contemplating it for a moment and be and realizing, just getting it, you know, 
right in the heart. Oh, <laughs> this, is, this is the way that it is. So, you know, the direct experience is like this. It's nothing so mysterious. Just trying to get a sense that it's in these kinds of everyday events that one has the opportunity to see it. And it also really demonstrates why the meditation practice is so important because we come, we get more and more skilled at just identifying and opening to what we're experiencing. There's no, there's like no holding back, you know, in those moments. There's no holding back what I was feeling. You just, you let it, you feel it. You let yourself feel it fully. And the more that we have insight into a nature, the more we're actually able to do that because you know it, it's, it's not going to last forever. It ends. Just give ourselves over to the feeling of this moment and contemplate it, get it at some deep level. Now, you can see this uh, very well in all kinds of occasions. And there's, a, there's another um, example that I'd like to give that's been very, very helpful for me. And I encourage you to do this kind of meditation because it's, uh, it's fun. It's really, and you can learn a lot from it. And it's what I call my ice cream meditation. Uh, this fella at uh, IMS and I came up with this, where we, um, we were, you know, every now and then somebody offers Ben and Jerry's ice cream at the end of retreats, and, and there's like this, this, you know, smorgasbord of every possible delicious flavor that you could want, you know. And so um, we would take the, the ice cream and sit across the table from each other and just practice with it and contemplate different aspects of the Buddhist teachings to see if we could see it in the simple experience of eating. For example, you could really see pleasure and uh, see, uh, see um, how, what the heart does in relation to pleasant taste, pleasant flavors, you know. But in, in this particular day, we thought, well, let's, let's, look, at, let's look closely and see uh, if we can get some insight into impermanence by, by doing this. So you take, some, you take a good, healthy dose of uh, something that you just absolutely love in terms of a flavor and put it on the tongue. And you can watch. Watch what happens in moments like that. You know, there's like this, ah, this incredible rush of happiness and delight. But within seconds, and I mean literally within seconds, even while the food is still in your mouth, you can't taste it anymore. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like the, the, the uh, it's not that tasting isn't happening, it's that the consciousness moves. You know, it doesn't hold still in one place very long. And so, you know, even while it's still happening, it, the, the pleasure that we're trying so hard to hold on to is, is gone. You know, because uh, the tasting itself is not continuing and the, pleasure, the pleasant experience of it is not continuing. The mind is already on to something else. It's fascinating to watch this, you know, just to, to, to set it up as a practice. Look and, and see for ourselves. You know, I began to realize, or Ken and I realized that, well, no wonder we eat so much of it, you know. <laughs> you have to keep eating it <laughs> to try to recreate it because it's not, there's nothing permanent about it, you know. And in our delusion, it's like in subtle ways, in, the, in those moments, we're trying to make it last, trying to make it permanent. And so we keep putting, shoveling more in to, to try to keep the pleasure going. But it doesn't, it doesn't last. So, you know, this, this is uh, some of the ways that we see it. 
there's a there's a wonderful story that Ajahn Sumedho tells that um, I think you I think uh, Ajahn Kitisaro has been here, hasn't he? Yeah. It was about um, an illness that you know. I don't know if you know Ajahn Kitisaro was very very ill. Um, he was one of those people where they say when they, they some people when they go to Asia, Asia gets them, you know. And uh, he was one of those people where um, he. He contracted every kind of illness that there was, and um, it really debilitated him, and, and so much so that he was near death more than once. And um, at the monastery, they had um, the, the task of caring for him, uh, trying to nurse him back to health. But they would, um, they had, he was out in the Kuti, I think, in the forest, and people would take care of him for a period of time. And then he got so bad that they, they actually brought him into the building. Uh, to make it easier on the caretakers. And there was a period where um, initially everybody was caring for him with great love and attention and just being with uh, his condition. But as time went by, um, it became noticeable that people were not so enthusiastic. You know, it was, it was, it was subtle. But, you know, this was somebody who was so ill that literally, like to brush his teeth, he, he could maybe brush a quarter of his mouth and then he had to rest, you know, because he was so exhausted uh, just from that uh, exertion. So you can imagine what the caretakers had to do to care for him. Well, um, Ajahn Sumedho noticed this um, lack of enthusiasm developing. And so they began to contemplate it and they realized <clears throat> that they were all caring for him so that he would get well. You know, and, and, and just the subtle way that one is holding that in the, in the mind, not, not holding the truth of illness and the dukkha of illness, but also the fact of impermanence. You know, that this is not a permanent condition. Some days are better, some days are worse. It, it, you know, just holding the, the fact of that would have helped tremendously, but they were getting very much lost in wanting it to end, you know. And if we get out of the way, things do end, but they end of their own accord. As long as we're holding on, trying to make it end, then we're suffering, you know. So uh, it was a very important stage for them. Of course, it was in all good Buddhist teachings, as soon as they stopped doing that, you know, he got well <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, was able to be, be um, an active member in the community again. So what, one more similar, similar thing, because this really um, brings it home for a lot of people, which is the, um, the contemplation of uh, death as a, as a, of, our, of our very existence as an impermanent condition. Um, and this is one where um, a friend of mine and I both had the situation where we were caring for parents who were dying, and um, um, it was it was amazing. After the after both of our parents were dead, and we were talking about our experience, um, to to note that we both had a very similar experience, which was that all the time that we were caring for them, there was like this sense of being very much duty bound to take care and to do what needed to be done. But then right at the moment of their death, there was this this feeling, like this incredible, overwhelming feeling of, oh my God, she's really going to die. 
you know, that, that, that wow, it, all of the time that I thought I knew that I was caring for her to make her, to ease her death, in my, I realized in that moment that I really wasn't holding it that way. You know, I was caring for her to make her comfortable, to make her happy, to, to, to make her feel better, you know, and not really getting it that she was actually going to die. And it was like um, in that moment, right after their, her last breath, and my friend had the same experience, there, there was like this sense of, oh, gosh, I wish I had gotten this. I wish I had gotten this. Just you know, you, you almost like you want to reverse time. And just give me a few more minutes with her, with the depth of this realization of death. You know, just the, the how I could have been with her if I had known that. You know, if I'd really gotten it. I, I think probably that people who work with, um, you know, in hospice and uh, see this repeatedly probably do get it in a way that a lot of us don't. You know, but um, you know, in, in, in a way, the the pain of, of been going through a lot of grief in the last years uh, after this and a lot of the pain of it has to do with that moment it doesn't have to do with even her being gone so much you know it's that I didn't get it and how that would have uh, changed the way that I was with her if I had gotten it you know it it, it reminds me of um Actually, what, what happened, uh, you know, with the World Trade Center attack, um, one of the uh, experiences that people complained about a lot was the fact that the media kept showing the planes, you know, flying into these buildings over and over and over again. And it was funny because in my, in my heart, I, I wasn't, I didn't feel distressed by that because it was almost like, um, for me, the experience was one of, I didn't get it the first time, you know. And each time that I saw that, it was like having the opportunity again to have it, to have, yes, it was a dagger, and yes, it went in deep, but it, it's like one needed to open up to the truth of what this was, to the dukkha of it, you know, to, to get it, to really get it. That, that things, uh, this is like a Nietzsche in your face, you know. I remember, um, Ajahn Amara writing to me during this time, you know, saying, wow, can you believe this? What a contemplation, you know. Certainly one doesn't want to have to get it through situations like this, but to to have that opportunity to again and again and again go back and let the truth of the impermanent suffering and selfless nature of our existence penetrate, you know, is very, very powerful. So uh, just one word on formal practice where um, if you have the opportunity to, to do long-term formal practice, um, one can see these things in very profound ways. And like I said, it's not necessary, but it is very, very helpful to be able to still the mind so much such that you can see the arising and passing of phenomena in a very, very precise and specific way that is just not apparent to us in our regular waking state. You know, it, the mind goes into somewhat of an altered state to be able to see these things for ourselves. And you can tell on a, on a long-term meditation re- retreat, sometimes you'll see people who are literally walking around holding on to walls, you know, 
because um, it, it's like your your experience of reality becomes like when you're walking in a funhouse, you know, and those one of those bridges that keeps rocking, you know. Um, everything uh, literally is called dissolution. Everything literally is breaking up all of the time, and you're seeing things at such a refined level that it's like an acid trip or something. You know, you're actually seeing this, seeing the constant um, dissolution of phenomenon. And, and that, that is a very penetrating way to get this insight. As I said, it's not necessary that we get it in that way, but one can through deep practice. So what, what, makes, these, uh, what makes these realizations just so important, you know, it's when we don't understand the simple truth of impermanence, of the changing nature of things, then when things are going well, there's this tendency to want to hold on to them, like like trays that are beautiful, you know. And when things are going badly, there's this tendency to, to want to push them away. You know, we expect happy moments, happy relationships to keep going on. You know, we, we expect life to not have these difficult moments in them. And if you can just get a sense of that, just feel the suffering in that way of holding reality. You know? It's just our whole existence is tied up with these two um, thrusts, these two energies. We're trying to hold on to things and trying to push things away. You know? And really, uh, insight into a Nietzsche in very subtle and unbelievably subtle and rich ways helps us to to get it that this kind of effort is futile <laughs> it's a suffering state and it's absolutely useless because of the truth which the truth is that things are impermanent and changing all of the time so i mean actually there's good news in it you know the the bad news might be that unhappy moments don't last you know it's like Okay, <laughs> happy moments don't last. Excuse me. So you you sort of you sort of can can tough it out with that one, you know. But the the good news in it is that um, un- unhappy moments don't last either. So uh, you know, one, I remember one of my friends used to say, "Well, that was the best gift that I ever gave her is to realize that." And she contemplates it all the time when things are difficult, that it is an impermanent condition. It will move. It will change. And, you know, it's, it's like the, the, the gift of this kind of insight. So what happens as we open to the truth of Anicca is that you find over time that you get a lot more content with life. You just get a lot more okay with it the way that it is. If you can feel that, it's like if you're not expecting it to be some other way, not pushing the way that away the way that it is, then, you know, there's just like, oh, you know, there's a there's an ease. There's a contentment with things as they are. We stop expecting things to be any other way, stop clinging. And but basically accept that, that the nature of phenomenon, all phenomenon, is to rise and pass away. So you stop looking for things to satisfy in any lasting way. And I mean everything whether it's relationships or objects or situations in our lives, they, they aren't going to satisfy in any permanent, lasting way. You know, no matter how much we love each other, we're going to hurt each other. 
You know, there's going to be bad moments. And, you know, just to get that. And one can feel the peace of this kind of, of letting go. Buddha said that the fact that all conditions are impermanent is enough to be weary of them, disgusted, and completely free of them. Just to let go. You know, feel the power of that kind of letting go. So this doesn't mean that we fall into like a woeful, depressed state. I think if we only hold this at an intellectual level, then that can happen very easily. You know, you, you, oh, all life is suffering, all life is impermanent, there's nothing that's going to last, you know. <laughs> and you get into this very uh, woeful, woeful state of mind. And sort of that what's the use, nothing lasts kind of feeling. But, you know, really this kind of thinking is just clinging to a moment of sorrow. It's like actually taking a moment and making it permanent, you know. <laughs> it's the same kind of thing, you're right back in the soup. But the realization of, of Anicca is, is accompanied by this, it's, it's a tremendous joy. It's like, ah, oh, it's like you can, it's compared to laying down the burden, you know. <sighs> I can stop this frantic pursuit for happiness, this frantic effort to get away from difficulty. I can let it go. Because I get it, you know. It's not going to be any permanent way. <coughs> so we accept the inevitability of change and we don't expect <clears throat> otherwise. And we see things for what they are so that they have no power over us. Situations and people don't have the, the power over us that we let them have. And you begin to relate to life, which is one of the things that I have found to be so helpful. You just relate to life without expectation. You can feel this sense of anticipation in, it, in, it, in wanting it to be some way or another. You know? And that whole, the whole energy of that can drop out of our lives. So just one, one more thought. Um, the Buddha talked extensively about um, so-called greed, hatred, and delusion. These are um, the roots of our suffering, difficult states, painful states. Um, and they're very much related to our lack of insight into a nature. And you can see this. You know, greed, if you just think of greed, not so much as this coarse level of having, you know, having to have things with this greedy, insatiable appetite, but more just this movement of the mind that, that this longing, a, a subtle, a very subtle level, just a movement in the direction of things out of this stillness of the present moment and a reaching out to try to grab or hold on. You know, it's, it's that movement. It's not like a coarse greed per se. It's just this movement of the mind. You know, Ajahn Chah says that the pure mind is very still. And these movements of the mind are seen as conventional reality. They're seen as the activity of the unawakened mind. And, and from a vantage point of understanding, they're just seen as movements of the mind. You don't go with them necessarily, right? So there's this, this one impulse um, where, you know, we're longing to get things that we don't have. And you can see where insight into impermanence, insight into a nature, we completely cut that off, you know. If, if, you, if we got it, there wouldn't, there wouldn't be that movement. 
So, you know, it's almost like a checkpoint. If there's still that movement in the mind, there's some level we're not resting in the truth of this understanding. One of the things that um, I've loved about the monastic sangha is they have they have a lot of little practices to help them get things. And one thing that they do um, to offset this holding on to things that they find pleasant or that they like is whenever they get a new set of robes, they immediately tear them. And uh, this is part of their ritual, it's part of their training. So that, um, you know, because there's not much to cling to in monastic life, you know. <laughs> they said they said you can watch themselves get crazy over getting a new bar of soap, you know, or a new toothbrush, you know. So when they get new robes, you know, fresh fabric and, and all that, they can get quite attached to these. So, I mean, they tear them. And if you ask any of them, you know, where's your tear? You know, they'll show you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> it's like getting it over. Let's get that over with, you know, so that any energy to keep this perfect and permanent and beautiful, uh, any longing for it to stay this way is done, you know. Get that over with. Um, one of the th- one of the things that uh, came to mind when I was thinking about this is um, something Upandita said uh, years ago in a in a talk, where he was saying um, he was talking about relationships and how we fall in love and we fall in love everlasting, you know this notion of something that's going to be this way forever and ever and ever, and he invited us to contemplate when you fall in love like that, and you say that you really really love, contemplate. Which moment do you love? Which moment is it that you love? And hold that as a reflection. And if you can do that, then you'll see the changing nature of things. So aversion is this longing to get free of things that we don't like. And it's this, you know, we talk about it as hatred. But, you know, hatred is a word that people kind of resist or or reject. You know, it is a strong word. It includes hatred. But get this subtle energy of this movement uh, of the heart and mind to reject what our experience is. Don't want it. Don't like it. Want it to be something else. But when we get a Nietzsche, when we get the truth of impermanence, there, there isn't any reason to do this. You know? Can you feel that? There isn't any reason to push things away because they'll end of their own accord. If we just get out of the way, <laughs> I don't care what it is, it's going to end. You know, it's very liberating to get that truth. It can really be a saving grace when we're in pain. So, uh, and then if, if we get it, then it really helps with the cultivation of endurance and patience because you can hold up through difficulty. You can just hang in there. And this right here is one of the major inroads or what we need to have in order to have another major insight, which is the insight into suffering. We have to be able to accept it, to receive it, to endure it patiently, long enough or consistently enough to drop out of it and see it too as a truth that is inescapable. It's a fundamental truth of our existence. There is suffering. So you can see where insight into a Nietzsche is very, very helpful in setting up the conditions that will allow for that insight to happen as well. So as this insight into a Nietzsche deepens, we stop trying to have things be anything, any way other than they are. And this sort of 
you know, I don't know about you, but I, I feel it so much in my life. There's like this tight-fistedness, you know. It, it, I just relax, and two seconds later, there it is again. You can relax, and again, here it is again. You know, there's this constant tightening and contracting around things. And the, the more that uh, we get a, a Nietzsche, the, the more relaxed we become around that. And um, an interesting thing begins to happen. The more we settle into the truth of it, and, and this has been a fabulous part of my own, my own practice. I encourage you to look and see for yourselves. You really begin to start noticing that there are a lot of happy moments. <laughs> it's like they're, they're, they're already there, you know. It, we, we get so um, anxious to, to have them and try to set up the conditions to make them happen and build this frantic life around the pursuit of them. And yet, you know, when you can let all that go because you understand, then you, you begin to notice that they're there. They're there, and they're much happier. They're much richer than they are when we're setting up, trying to make them happen, you know, aren't they? You know, it's like frantically trying to make them happen. And um, all of a sudden, whoa, that was a great moment, you know. (laughs) We begin to notice these uh, a lot more easily. So, I mean, happy moments are suddenly happier, but you know, painful moments are also going to be more painful. That's maybe the downside of it. But, um, I mean, the beauty of that is if, you, if we get a nature, we allow that in, allow those moments in because we know they're going to end. And that dagger in the heart that comes with painful moments that's actually one of our main inroads, not only to uh, insight into dukkha, but to the development of compassion in the heart. You know, when, when we get it that difficulty is unavoidable, then you, you just sort of rest in this place that does what's the only reasonable thing to do when they're suffering, which is to reach out and, you know, hold it and comfort oneself or another person. It's the only thing that makes sense. And the more that we have insight uh, into Anicca, the, the easier that becomes. So just to invite you to, to contemplate Anicca in, our, in your lives. Um, uh, one, one way that the, the nuns have taught me to do it is just to, to hold uh, a, a notion of um, a wish to see the endings of things or um, a, a noticing the beginnings of things. And um, throughout, like say for a period of a month or even a week or so, just say, I'm going to notice this. I'm going to notice, try to notice things begin, try to notice things end. Usually, if you're a beginning meditator, the endings are easier to see. <laughs> um, one gets, has to get quite still to see things arise. But if we see the endings of things, that's, that's enough. And, and hold that as a contemplation in the mind. And this will actually move the insight along, okay? So I think it's important to, to, worthy of note that in a way the Buddha's very first words and last words um, had to do with Anicca. When after his enlightenment uh, and he went and gave a talk to the five ascetics, one of the first things he said, the, the very first thing he said in the Dhammachaka Sutta is um, there are these two extremes. 
indulgence and pleasures and self-mortification, basically looking at this movement of the mind. And he said they should be avoided. And getting at noticing this movement, noticing the uh, extremes in our existence and getting it so that uh, that we can settle down into the truth of just seeing them, right? And then uh, as he died, he said, all conditioned things are impermanent. All conditioned things are impermanent. Strive on with diligence. Basically saying, see this, <laughs> see this. You know, and when you consider that his, his, the whole thrust of his teaching, his wish for us was to be happy. That, that had to be very important for that to be his dying words. Right. So I offer you this this morning for your reflection. I hope it's, hope it's helpful.